Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun, here. Glad you could join us today. So, I remind you, you're listening to our recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. All right, so let's get into it. Let's go to an Israel story here. This is from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, June 19, 2023. Netanyahu says Israel will proceed with contentious judicial overhaul. From the Associated Press. Tel Aviv. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Sunday that his government intends to move ahead with contentious plans to change the country's judicial system as talks aimed at finding a compromise solution appeared to be crumbling. The government's plans to overhaul the judiciary plunged Israel into one of its worst domestic crises earlier this year. Negotiations between the government and opposition parties somewhat alleviated the crisis with attempts to find a middle ground over proposed changes to the country's justice system. Those talks were jolted last week by a crisis surrounding the powerful regular committee, uh, regular committee responsible for picking the country's judges. Opposition leaders said negotiations were frozen until the committee is formed. At a meeting of his cabinet on, on Sunday, Netanyahu said that the opposition hadn't been negotiating in good faith and that his government would move ahead cautiously on the overhaul. This week we will begin the practical steps. We will do them in a measured way, responsibly, but in accordance with the mandate we received to make corrections to the justice system, he said. Netanyahu put the overhaul on hold in March after mass protests erupted. The decision to move ahead is likely to fuel the protest movement that has continued to demonstrate each Saturday despite the plan being paused. Protest leaders said they were ready for another round of demonstrations that would make sure every attempt to harm Israel's democratic justice system will fail. Opposition leader Yar Lapid, whose party had been negotiating with Netanyahu, said moving ahead, with uni- moving ahead unilaterally on the plan will critically harm the economy, endanger security, and rip the Israel people to shreds. Netanyahu's government, compro- composed of ultra-nationalist and ultra-religious parties, faced harsh opposition to the overhaul plan when it was announced this year. Leading economists, top legal officials, and former defense officials warned of dangerous consequences to the country's future. Even Israel's chief international ally, the U.S. US expressed concern. The government says the plan is necessary to restore power to elected officials and weaken what it says is an interventionalist Supreme Court. Critics say the plan would append Israel's delicate system of checks and balances and push the country toward authoritarianism. Netanyahu backed down after mass spontaneous protests erupted and a general strike was called for after he fired was called for after he fired his defense minister, who dissented from the plan over widespread threats by military reservists to not show up for duty if the overhaul was approved. The committee for appointing judges which, among other things, approves the makeup of the Supreme Court, has been a central battleground in the overhaul process. Both the governing coalition and the opposition traditionally are represented on the nine-member committee, but proponents of the overhaul had demanded that the coalition control both positions, drawing accusations that Netanyahu and his allies were trying to stack the judiciary with cronies. Last week, 
The Parliament appointed the opposition representative to the committee, but the second vacancy was not filled, keeping the committee from resuming its work. That was Netanyahu says Israel will proceed with contentious judicial overhaul from the Associated Press. Out of the World section of the Los Angeles Times for Monday, June 19, 2023. And now staying overseas, we have this one from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, June 20th, 2023. Secretary Blinken reports constructive meetings in China. Conversation with Xi helps to ease tension, but discord remains. By Tracy Wilkinson and Stephanie Yang. Washington. Wrapping up a high-stakes two-day mission to China, the the top U.S. diplomat held candid, constructive talks with President Xi Jinping and other officials that eased tensions but left major, daunting differences unresolved, both sides said Monday. Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken said, We have made progress, but there remain many issues on which we profoundly, even vehemently disagree, such as China's military expansion, threats to the self-ruled island of Taiwan, and human rights. Blinken said he believed he accomplished one major task by attempting to reassure China that the Biden administration is not seeking to undermine it and by reopening channels of communication that had all but slammed shut amid deteriorating U.S.-China ties. Look, it was clear coming in, in that the relationship was at a point of instability and both sides recognized the need to work to stabilize it, Lincoln told reporters at the American Center in Beijing. He said the two governments agreed to send senior officials to each other's countries in the coming weeks. The 35-minute meeting with Xi at the Great Hall of the People was not a guaranteed event and was confirmed to journalists only about an hour before it took place. Blinken failed to revive military-to-military communications, the process by which the two superpowers' armed forces regularly confer, in part to avoid accidental clashes or other crises. Blinken said he raised the issue repeatedly to no avail. In recent weeks, there have been several near collisions involving Chinese and U.S. sea vessels and aircraft in the Taiwan Strait. In at least one case, China's defense ministry refused to take a call from U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd J. Austin III. The meetings that we had were very candid, very in-depth, and in in, in places constructive, Blinken said. And in other, other places, we have a lot more work to do. He added that progress is hard, noting that it takes time. It takes one, uh, more than one visit, one trip, one conversation. Xi seemed pleased with the meeting, saying he concurred that the, that the world needs a stable U.S.-China relationship with neither attempting to challenge or replace the other, according to the official Xinhua News Service. The president said the meeting was positive and the two sides remained pro- uh, the two sides made progress and reached some agreements, China's central television reported without elaboration. Others were less anguished, less, less sanguine. Hugh Zhijin, former editor-in-chief of the Communist Party-backed Global Times, said he vi- the visit seemed to, to, to go well. But he said that Chinese social, Chinese social media platform Weibo that future developments would depend on whether the U.S. continues to play the trick of saying one thing before the meeting and then doing another. After. On Taiwan, differences remain sharp. 
Blinken said that he is sure the Chinese that U.S. policy on the island, which Beijing views as its own, has not changed. And the Biden administration does not support its independence. At the same time, he said, he told them the U.S. opposes unilateral steps by either Beijing or Taipei to change the island's status. And he complained about China's provocative actions toward Taiwan. Wang Yi, the former Chinese foreign minister with whom Blinken also met, said later that Taiwan remains a central theme in the U.S.-Chinese relationship. On this issue, China has no room for compromise or concession, Wang said, according to Xinhua. Blinken's trip, the first to China by a U.S. Secretary of State in five years, was delayed by four months after the angry dispute over what the U.S. said was a Chinese spy balloon that traversed North America before being shot down by a U.S. fighter jet. The talks were meant to follow up on initial contacts made last year by Xi and President Biden at a summit in Bali. In his public comments, Blinken did not detail human rights conditions in China and Hong Kong, where dissent is being brutally silenced and hundreds of thousands of ethnic Uyghurs, Y-U-Y-G-H-U-R-S, are confined to labor camps. On Ukraine, Blinken said he reiterated a warning to Beijing that it not send lethal aid to Russia and that it be very vigilant that any aid it does send does not uh, not be converted to milit- for military purposes. There, were no in- there was no indication of substantive progress on other vexing issues, including trade, China complains bitterly of tariffs imposed during the Trump administration, opiate production, and the export of chemicals used to make phenytal, the drug that has made the U.S. addiction crisis even more deadly. Ahead of the trip, U.S. officials downplayed expectations for Blinken's diplomatic efforts given how low the relationship has sunk. Renewing communication and agreeing to manage their differences were the critical first steps, Blinken said. The United States is committed to doing that, he said. It's in the interest of the United States, in the interest of China, and in the interest of the world. That was Secretary Blinken reports constructed meetings in China by Tracy Wilkinson and Stephanie Yang from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, June 20, 2023. Wilkinson reported from Washington and Yang from Taipei. Special correspondent David Chen contributed from Taipei. All right, and back here in the U.S., this is from the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, June 22, 2023. Sanders launches Senate inquiry into workplace safety at Amazon by Laura Litvan. Progressive Senator Bernie Sanders, independent of Vermont, launched an investigation into charges of unsafe working conditions at Amazon.com warehouses across the U.S., raising the possibility of high-profile hearings on complaints over the retailer's treatment of employees. Safety issues at Amazon's warehouses have been a flashpoint between the company and labor activists. The Labor Department's Occupational Safety and Health Administration in February cited the company for violation of safety laws at warehouses in three states. Sanders, who chairs the Senate Committee with Jurisdiction Over Labor Laws, portrayed the company as maintaining its position as one of the world's most valuable companies at the expense of its workers' well-being, saying Amazon employees suffer higher injury rates than comparable workers elsewhere. Sanders asserted that the company endangers its workers by requiring them to navigate narrow warehouse aisles 
lift heavy boxes, and engage in repetitive movements without adequate breaks. The company's quest for profits at all costs has led to unsafe physical environments, intense pressure to work at unstable rates, and inadequate medical attention for tens of thousands of Amazon workers every year, Sanders said in a letter Tuesday to Amazon.com chief executive Andy Jacey. Amazon spokesperson Steve Kelly defended the company's safety record, saying the retailer has invested more than a billion dollars in safety initiatives over the last four years and reduced injuries 23% in U.S. operations since 2019. Amazon is the the nation's second largest private employer after Walmart Incorporated. We review the letter and strongly disagree with Senator Sanders' assertions, Kelly said in an emailed statement. In his letter, Sanders cited data that found that Amazon workers had nearly 39,000 workplace injuries in 2022, 95% of which caused them to lose work hours or modify their duties. The rate of injuries is 6.6 per 100 workers, more than double the rate at non-Amazon warehouses, according to a report from the Strategic Organizing Center, a coalition of major labor unions. If Amazon can afford to spend $6 billion on stock buybacks last year, it can afford to make sure that its warehouses are safe places to work, he wrote. It's the second time this year that Sanders has taken on a major company over its labor-related practices. In March, Starbucks recently departed Chief Executive Howard Schultz testified under threat of subpoena before Sanders' committee. Schultz forcefully defended the company's response to union organizing, rejecting a labor board judge's ruling that the company had committed egregious violations of the law. Sanders announced that he, his panel has set up a web page for Amazon employees to make confidential reports of the company's safety performance, a sign that the committee is seeking cases to highlight its public testimony or reports. That was Sanders launches Senate Inquiry into Workplace Safety at Amazon by Laura Litvan from the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, June 22, 2023. Litvan writes for Bloomberg. All right, and now there's this story uh, from the House of Representatives from the nation's section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, June 22, 2023. Schiff embraces censor by House Republicans by Owen Tucker Smith, Washington. The House of Representatives censored Representative Adam B. Schiff in a party-line 213-209 vote Wednesday, and the Burbank Democrat seems delighted. The censor was a victory for Donald Trump, who had called for primary challenges to any Republicans who voted against it, and an indication of the former president's continued hold on the GOP. But Schiff, a candidate for the U.S. Senate seat held by Dianne Feinstein, who was retiring, didn't fight particularly hard against the effort to formally chastise him. He told the Times he initiated no conversations with Republicans in the last week to sway their votes. He's called the censor a badge of honor and has already begun using the free publicity to fuel his Senate campaign. Roosevelt said, you can judge a person by the enemies they make, Schiff said in an interview with the Times on Wednesday before the vote. By that standard, I'm doing pretty damn well. Members of Congress censor their colleagues to humiliate them, but censored politicians face no automatic discipline or repercussions, just shame and public disrespect. After votes were cast Wednesday afternoon, Democrats tried to turn that that disrepute around, crying out shame at their GOP colleagues, 
Santos shouted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York, refer referring to Representative George Santos, Republican of New York, who has pleaded not guilty to federal fraud charges. Representative Anna Paulina Luna of Florida led the GOP effort to censorship, arguing that he has misled the public by saying that Trump co uh, colluded with, Russia, with Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. Special counsel Robert S. Mueller III's investigation into Russia interference did not identify evidence that Trump's campaign illegally conspired to, uh, conspired to coordinate with Russia, though it benefited from Moscow's efforts. Schiff defended his position on the House floor Wednesday. The censor resolution, he said, would hold that when you give internal campaign polling, uh, data, polling uh, internal campaign polling data to a Russian intelligence operative, while Russian intelligence is helping your campaign, as Trump's campaign chairman did, then you must not call that collusion, though that is the proper name. The resolution describes Schiff as dishonest, dishonorable, and misleading, and it calls for a committee on ethics investigation uh, to, into his conduct. Luna introduced a different version of the measure last week, but that effort failed after 20 Republicans joined Democrats in voting to table it. The Florida Congresswoman was able to sway colleagues after she removed a $16 million fine from the text of the censor and Trump issued his primary threat. Adam Schiff abused his position as chair of Intel to lie and lead America through a national nightmare with the fake Russian collusion narrative, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy of Bakersfield tweeted Wednesday. Schiff, in a hotly contested Senate race, can use the publicity and the funds that come with it. On Tuesday night, he blasted out a campaign text message asking for donations. Please rush an urgent donation to help me fight back against the political attack so we can get back to addressing the real needs of our country, he wrote. The congressman hauled in $6.5 million in the first quarter of 2023. But Democratic Representative Katie Porter of Irvine, his closest rival, com uh, his closest competitor right now, wasn't far behind with $4.5 million. With just over a week of fundraising left this quarter, and with nine months until primary day, the censor may give Schiff a political boost. It's the best thing that could happen to him, said Mike Madrid, a Republican political consultant and co-founder of the anti-Trump Lincoln Part Project. It's the biggest in-kind contribution he could receive. The House previously censored Representative Paul Gosar, Republican of Arizona, in November 2021 for tweeting a manipulated video showing himself killing Ocasio-Cortez and attacking President Biden. The chamber censored Representative Charles B. Rangel, Democrat of New York, for various finance violations, and it censored Gary Stubbs, Democrat of Massachusetts, and Dan Crane in 1983 for sexual misconduct with, with House pages. Over the last 40 years, Schiff is just the fifth representative to be censored, a distinction that Madrid pointed out amounts to but a piece of paper. A censor is just a resolution, he said. It's just a document. Okay, you're censored. Okay, you're censoring me. Great. After Democrats failed to table Luna's motion, the House settled into a contentious back and forth with speeches slamming Schiff's record uh, alternating with glowing reviews of his career. The highest-ranking California Democrats came to Schiff's defense, describing him as an accomplished colleague whom Republicans were targeting to appease Trump. Representative Nancy Pelosi, Democrat of San Francisco, called Schiff wonderful and blasted GOP House members for wasting their time. The other side 
has turned this chamber into a puppet show, Pelosi said. A puppet show, and you know what? The puppeteer, Donald Trump, is shining a light on the strings. You look miserable. Miserable. On the other side of the country, some Democrats are pleased with the news. Hans Johnson, president of Los Angeles's East Area Progressive Democrats, said members of his club think that the censor vote is a political maneuver that doesn't have basis. He believes that, if anything, the development will help the congressman's case. Schiff sometimes lacks the flashiness of his advocacy and his service that Porter and Representative Barbara Lee, Democrat of Oakland, another rival in the Senate race, have, Johnson said. The censor raises his profile and just makes him seem like a hotter commodity in Washington, Johnson said. Sometimes the antagonists end up augmenting credentials and merit badges for the people they target. Johnson's club is still finalizing its endorsement in the race. Johnson said the censor could have an incremental effect on whom the club sides with. Californians respect the fact that I'm in the middle of this fight and I'm taking on whatever attacks come my way to defend our democracy, Schiff said. That's what they're looking for in the Senate. In the final hours before Tuesday night's vote, Schiff wasn't hopeful about avoiding a censor. The failed vote to table the measure indicated that Luna had gathered enough support. I'm assuming that they will have the votes because Donald Trump has threatened to primary any one of them that votes against it, Schiff said. And the one consistent feature of Republicans in the House has been their unswerving devotion, their swift obedience to the whims of the disgraced former president. And I don't think today will be any different. The successful shift censor opens the door to a number of possible Republican maneuvers, including a vote to impeach Biden. Representatives Lauren Boebert, Republican of Colorado, Marjorie, Green Taylor, Marjorie Taylor Green, Republican of Georgia, and Andy Ogles, Republican of Tennessee, are introducing or planning to introduce resolutions to impeach the president. The three representatives and Luna are all members of the House Freedom Caucus. Members of the caucus are competing to be the most extreme, Representative Pete Aguilar, Democrat of Redland, suggested on Wednesday morning. Whether it's Paulina Luna or Lauren Boebert or Marjorie Taylor Greene, these are individuals who will still to this day question the results of a free and fair election in 2020, Aguilar told reporters. They're trying to out-MAGA and out-extreme each other by pushing measures to impeach, impeach, expel, and censor. Porter's office did not respond to a request for comment on the censor vote. Lee wrote in a statement that Wednesday was an example of the GOP continuing to peddle the big lie. They proved time and time again that they are more concerned about Fox News appearances than fortifying their dem- our democracy. And this resolution is just their latest stunt, Lee said. It's shameful. That was Schiff embraces censored by House Republicans by Owen Tucker Smith from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, June 22, 2023. All right, here is a follow-up article from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times for Friday, June 23, 2023. For Adam Schiff, censor is a gift from House Republicans by Mark Z. Barabak. On Thursday, Representative Adam Schiff turned 63. His birthday present arrived a day early, courtesy of vengeful House Republicans. Schiff was formally censored Wednesday for his role in holding to account the most immoral, self-centered, self-dealing, insurrectionist president in modern American history. The only thing missing was wrapping paper, a shiny red bow, and a greeting card dotted with X's and O's. 
Former President Trump has described Schiff as shifty, sick, and corrupt. He has also made the congressman what he is today, a political household name and prosecutorial hero to millions of Democrats nationwide. The rebuke from the House GOP boosted Schiff's political stock even further, edging the Burbank Democrat closer to his goal of besting a handful of party rivals and succeeding Dianne Feinstein as the next U.S. Senator from California. I would call it an advertisement for Adam Schiff, Bob Schrum, a veteran Democratic strategist who teaches political science at USC, said after the party line censor vote. Brought to you by the MAGA caucus in the the Republican House. In today's nihilistic political climate, what a candidate accomplishes is increasingly less important to partisans than whom they antagonize along the way. With enemies like uh, Trump and his acolytes, Schiff might as well ask, who needs friends? The vote Wednesday was a monumental exercise in political self-gratification. The move had no practical impact. It was purely symbolic, save for cheapening the already degrading image of the inmate-run House Asylum. Censor, which has occurred only 25 times in the House, is a punishment usually reserved for criminal conduct, ethics violations, or serious breaches of conduct. Schiff, who led the prosecution in Trump's first impeachment, the one involving attempting bribery in Ukraine, was reprimanded for, among other things, helping bring to light secret Russian interference in the 2016 election in support of Trump's campaign. Contrary to the assertions of Trump and others, an investigation by special counsel Robert S. Mueller III did not exonerate Trump or campaign strategists of charges that they had encouraged Russian meddling, though it found no evidence of criminal conspiracy. Mueller made a strong case for obstruction of justice, but said that under Justice Department policy, a sitting president could not be criminally prosecuted. None of that, however, mattered to the, in the GOP's show trial proceedings, where the verdict was preordained, and all that mattered was satting the animal spirit of the Republican base. Schiff's actions ripped apart American families across the country, the censor's lead sponsor, Florida Republican Anna Paulina Luna, proclaimed with no lack of hyperbole. He was permanently destroying family relationships. And you thought fighting over the remote was the problem. When it came time for Schiff's formal reprimand, as he stood at the front of the House chamber, having the censor resolution read aloud by Speaker Kevin McCarthy, he was sworn by fellow Democrats who clapped him on the back. Shame, they chanted, and their catcalls. Disgrace. What about George Santos? Caused a frustrated McCarthy to repeatedly start and stop. Meanwhile, a fundraising solicitation from Schiff ricocheted across the internet. Last week, an attempt to censor Schiff failed because some in the GOP objected to a proposed $16 million fine. Once more, I have to be on the House floor to listen to MAGA Republicans push false and defamatory lies about me, Schiff lamented in his fundraising email. But after the proceeding, the freshly admonished lawmaker was all smiles. Before Trump came along, Schiff was scarcely known outside a Southern California district. His claim to fame, if you'd call it that, was being elected in 2000 in what was once the costliest House race in U.S. history. Then Congress launched its investigation, separate from the Mueller probe, into Russian interference in the 2016 campaign. As the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, the studious Schiff became the 
purse-lipped face of the Congressional Inquisition and a Trump target. He was elevated by a slew of insult Latin presidential tweets and became a television staple, which in turn vaulted Schiff into strong contention for the 2024 race for Feinstein's Senate seat. His two main Democratic competitors are Representatives Barbara Lee of Oakland and Katie Porter of Irvine. The substantive differences among the three are relatively small, but Porter and Lee have been running hard to the left, aiming at the party's liberal base by suggesting, by suggesting Schiff, a favorite of former Speaker House Pelosi and others in the party's establishment, is somehow less of a Democrat. That becomes harder when Republicans treat him as public enemy number one. Katha Hartley, a Bay Area Democratic activist, was positively effusive in the hours after the censor. She is a former president of the Democrats of Rosemore Club, a must-stop for political hopefuls. Schiff, Porter, and Lee have all, been, have all made the trek to audition before hundreds of members of, in the 55 and over community. He is a symbol of what stands between the MAGAs and our democracy, Hartley said of Schiff. He takes it to them. He points out what they're doing. It's honorable that he was censored. She declared Wednesday a victory day for the sanctioned congressman, and despite her wish to see a woman take Feinstein's place, said, my gut is telling me I'm going to vote for Adam Schiff. He can thank House Republicans for that. That was For Adam Schiff, Censor is a Gift from House Republicans by Mark C. Baraback from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, June 23, 2023. All right, we have one more thing here. From the Los Angeles Times, Monday, June 19, 2023, Anti-Semitic Flyers Litter Redlands Residence Driveways by Summer Lynn. Residents of Redlands in San Bernardino County awoke last weekend to find anti-Semitic flyers littering their driveway. The leaflets, which were placed inside baggies that were weighed down by rocks, included a message targeting abortion and Jewish people. Marty Christensen told KNBC4 Channel 4 this isn't the first time her neighborhood has been targeted with such messages. It was very hateful, she told the news outlet, describing the flyers she found in her driveway. I don't know anybody at all that shares that viewpoint. The Council on American-Islamic Relations called out the incident, saying it was extremely alarmed by the disturbing show of anti-Semitism. Hate has no place in our society, much less in our neighborhoods and homes, where people should feel safe, respected, and free from discrimination, Hussam A. Lausch, CAIR-LA's executive director, said in a statement. Anti-Semitic and anti-LGBTQ plus flyers were also found outside Edison High School in Huntington Beach last week after a student-produced video promoting Pride Month sparked backlash at a school board meeting. Residents near Hamilton Avenue and Bouchard Court found flyers that featured a pentagram a Star of David, and the words, the LGBTQ plus movement in Jewish, in plastic bags weighed down by rocks. Investigators were working to determine their, the source of the leaflets. Their distribution was limited to a small, isolated area, Huntington Beach Mayor Tony Strickland said in a statement Wednesday. There was anti-Semitic flyers Little Redlands residence driveways by Summer Lynn from the Los Angeles Times from Monday, June 19, 2023. Times Community Newswriter Eric Likas, L-I-C-A-S, contributed to this report. All right, now here is a little something from a website called 
teruah.org, Teruah, the Rabbinic Call for Human Rights, and this is called Karak, Holding On to Hope for Karak, by Rabbi Daniel K. Alter for 2023, no exact date. The story of Karak is a troubling tale of rebellion and divine retribution. Our Torah vilifies him and our Talmud doubles down, detailing and reiterating his torturous ruin. The rabbis describe Korach and his followers with such <clears throat> indignation, such contempt. In their eyes, Korach is a lost cause, and yet one rabbi voices another opinion. In the Talmud, Sanhedrin 10109b, Rabbi Yehuda ben Betira calls Korach an Avida Hamibakshet, a lost item that one still seeks. Unlike others, Rabbi Yehuda does not feel yaush, a sense of resignation or despair that a lost item, or in this case a lost person, would not or could not be recovered. He compares Karak to the authors of Psalm 119, a lengthy acrostic in which the author acknowledges their errors and aspires for a better path. Yehuda wishes for a Karak who would utter, With that my ways were firm in keeping your laws, I will keep your laws. Do not utterly forsake me. May your steadfast love reach me, Adonai, your deliverance. Psalm 119, 5, 8, and 41. Unlike his colleagues, unlike Moses, perhaps even unlike God, Rabbi Yehuda ben Betira holds on to hope that even Korach can make teshuva. Even more, Rabbi Yehuda seeks it out. In our online lives, we continually face challengers who frustrate us by their beliefs and their behavior. While we may not go so far as to hope for their fires or chasms of Korach's punishment, we are often quick to take drastic action. What do we do? We block, we unfollow, we unfriend, we sever what, uh, what for so many of us has become the primary connection to those outside of our ever-shrinking group of close friends and family. We do it out of anger. We do it out of frustration. We do it out of loathing. We do it out of contempt. And that virtual contempt is bleeding into the real world. In his book, Blink, author Malcolm Gladwell describes the work of Dr. John Gottman, a psychologist who studies divorce. As Gladwell describes, Gottman has, has honed his skill at recognizing more than 20 different signs and emotions to evaluate a relationship. One of these behaviors stands above the rest as the most destructive, the single biggest indicator that a couple will divorce. That pattern is contempt. On an episode of his podcast, journalist Ezra Klein interviewed author Sheila Liming, who wrote a book called Hanging Out about increasing feelings of loneliness and isolation among Americans. There, Klein explored the difference between anger and contempt. Anger is a constructive emotion often. It's an emotion that wants resolution, and when I'm angry with you, what I want to do is have some kind of interaction around that anger. Anger is relational, and contempt is the opposite. Contempt is, I just can't even. I'm just not going to deal with you. You're beneath notice. You're not part of my circle anymore. You're not worth engaging with. When we escalate from anger to contempt to what 19th century philosopher author Schopenhauer described as the unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of another, we move our gaze from a person's actions to their individuality, their personhood. 
We elevate ourselves and look down upon them with derision and scorn. We no longer see a person made Bezalem Elohim in the image of God, and by losing sight of another, we lose sight of ourselves. In number 1633, we learn that Karak and all his people were, went down alive into Sheol, S-H-E-O-L, the earth closed over them, and they vanished from the midst of the congregation. This is not the result of anger. We feel anger. We desire resolution. When we feel contempt, we seek to erase that person from existence. And now with the ease of clicking a button, we can effectively do so. As Klein explains, the dominant negative emotion online is contempt, and the dominant negative emotion in real interactions is anger. In real life, you get pissed off at a person, then maybe you have a fight, but those things bring some kind of healing, uh, uh, oftentimes, or some kind of new space the two of you can occupy together, whereas online, I think you get used to saying, well, I'm done with you, I can't with you, and I wonder how much, if you get more and more used to that online, it becomes your reaction to conflict in real life. To conflict in real life. The next time you consider blocking, unfollowing, or unfriending, the next time your cursor hovers over that button, remember the compassion of Rabbi Yehuda ben Betira. If you feel angry, be angry. Then engage with the hope of resolution. Yes, it is an unfortunate truth that some people are truly toxic. And while I believe everyone is capable of teshuva, sometimes it is healthier to disconnect. If we make that decision, let us make it from a place of thoughtful compassion for ourselves and others, and not from a place of raging contempt for them. That was Karak holding onto hope for Karak by Rabbi Daniel K. Alter, 2023, no actual date, uh, from teruah.org. And Rabbi Daniel K. Alter looks forward to beginning his new role as the first rabbi educator of Temple Kola Emeth in Marietta, Georgia next month. He moonlights as a writer for Torah Aura, a Jewish education publishing company, and is an established geek at Darth Rabbi and an aspiring golfer. And now we're going to read some articles from a publication called J Living, the Mensch issue of 2023. We start with uh, this one from the Mocker's Desk, The Omer, by David Nemitz. From Passover to Shavuot, we embarked on a 49-day journey known as the Omer. During the, count, uh, the counting, we recite a prayer that holds deep significance. Baruch atah Adonai Elohim Melech HaOlam, Asher Kirishanu B'Mitzvatav B'Tzivano Al-Safarat HaOmer. It translates to, Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, ruler of the universe, who sanctifies us with misvote and commands us concerning the counting of the Omer. This humble prayer encapsulates the essence of this special observance as we celebrate the concept of mitzvot. And mitzvot leads us to uh, becoming menches who perform acts of kindness, engage in good deeds, and strive to make our world a better place. It is an honor to commemorate some of those menches and our community who enrich our lives. However, I must share the sad news of the loss of a true mensch from our staff, Jeff Thompson. Jeff played a vital role as our designer and contributed immensely to shaping the aesthetic of Jay Living. Having previously worked with Jeff, I cannot adequately express the pleasure it was to collaborate with him once again on each issue. 
We bantered about the Lakers and Dodgers while deliberating over a Hebrew font or uh, finding ways to make the editorial content fit seamlessly. May Jeff's memory be a blessing. As summer approaches, it's time to embrace the joy and excitement it brings. I encourage you to seize every opportunity for fun and adventure. Additionally, I invite you to take full advantage of the offerings provided by our valued advertisers. When engaging with them, kindly mention our magazine and express thanks for their support. It is their contributions that enable us to continue publishing, and we are incredibly grateful for their continued support. Lahayim, David Nemitz. That's The Omer by David Nemitz from the Mocker's Desk section. Right, now here is a section called Maven. And it's Dear Maven. In each issue, we ask our readers to submit questions they have about Jewish life. From questions about Jewish practices to family advice, we are here to search for the best maven to answer your inquiries. To submit a question, please email us at maven, M-A-V-E-N, at jlivingmedia.com. Dear Maven, I heard in Israel they are working on making grasshoppers into food products. Is that kosher? Sincerely, Robert. Robert, who cares? Are you going to eat a grasshopper steak or enjoy a bowl of grasshopper soup? Enough already. Go to the store and get yourself a nice chicken. Can you imagine one of your friends calling and asking if they want to come over for Shabbat to enjoy a nice meal of grasshoppers and potatoes? Oy, gewalt. But as the maven, here we go. Torah and the rabbis of the Talmud say it is okay for some Jews to eat some kinds of locusts. The Torah tells us, that they must have four wings that cover most of their body, four legs for walking, and upper leg joints for jumping. Now here's where it gets interesting. All locusts are grasshoppers, but not all grasshoppers are locusts, and, and of, of the many species locusts, only four are allowed kosher. But there's another catch. Only Jews with a continuous tradition of eating grasshoppers can continue eating it, which limits them to Yemenites and some Jews in northern Africa. Rashi argued that many Jews have lost the ability to identify what locusts one can eat. Therefore, they must refrain from eating them. I think we can imagine a cheering crowd of Ashkenazi Jews who threw their fried grasshoppers to the ground and cooked a goose instead. Sincerely, The Maven. Dear Maven, I find myself torn between my deep-rooted Jewish identity and my growing fascination with modern technology. As a tech enthusiast, I'm constantly surrounded by gadgets and advancements that captivate my interests. However, I sometimes worry that my enthusiasm for the latest tech trends might be overshadowing my connection to Jewish traditions. How can I strike a balance between embracing the wonders of technology and staying true to my Jewish heritage? Sincerely, Tech Troubled Torah Lover. Dear Tech Troubled Torah Lover, Find harmony between your passion for technology and your Jewish identity, uh, can be an exciting journey. Here are some suggestions to help you strike a balance. Embrace technological advancements in Jewish life. From using innovative apps for studying Torah and accessing digital prayer resources to connecting with Jewish communities worldwide through online platforms, technology can offer valuable tools to deepen your engagement with Jewish traditions. Remember the Sabbath. Designate specific times or spaces where you disconnect from technology. These intentional breaks can always can allow you to focus on nurturing your Jewish identity without the influence of technology. Engage in Jewish learning. 
deepen your knowledge of Jewish history, culture, and teachings. Explore the rich texts and wisdom within Judaism to strengthen your connections to your heritage. Consider participating in classes, joining study groups, or seeking guidance from knowledgeable mentors who can help you navigate the intersection of technology and Jewish life. Judaism is a vibrant, evolving religion that encourages engagement with the world while maintaining a sense of sacredness. With a little practice, I am sure you can find a balance that allows you to thrive both as a tech enthusiast and a proud follower of Jewish traditions. Wishing you a harmonious journey of exploration and growth. And that was Dear Maven from the Maven section. Now here's a section called Michigo's Kosher Style. It's a bunch of little articles, starting with this one. Kosher Salt, the Real Scoop from JL. Did you know that table salt is just as kosher as kosher salt? The term kosher on salt packaging actually refers to the size of the salt crystal, not its cast root status. Table salt is made from mined deposits and undergoes a refining process to remove, imp remove impurities. And it's often enriched with iodine for added nutrition. Kosher salt, on the other hand, is a coarse salt that has historically been used in, the, in draining blood from meat to adhere to kosher laws. While it may not be inherently kosher, the larger grain size facilitates the extraction of blood during meat preparation. However, not all kosher salts are actually kosher, so it's important to look for the Hesher kosher symbol to ensure it's, it meets kosher standards and doesn't contain any non-kosher additives. That's kosher salt, the real scoop. This next one is, is my oven kosher? From JL. All appliances are not the same. Check out GE's latest ovens, ranges, and refrigerators that often enhance Shabbos mode. With the Shabbos keepers built in Jewish calendar every Shabbat and Jewish holiday uh, will be set for your, ne uh, your needs. The application can automatically control your refrigerator's interior lighting, automatic defrost, compressor and cooling system, door switch, and sensors. For ovens, the application will allow you to open the door at any time, even while the oven is running and can go into automatic warm mode or cycle between warm and baked schedules for your Yom Tov meals. In 2021, the Orthodox Union proudly announced that the GE ovens with this technology became the first ever certified kosher ovens for us on Shabbat and Yom Tov. That was Is My Oven Kosher? This next one is called Kosher Is Going Up by JL. According to Future Market Insights, the kosher food market is thriving and on the rise. Its value of over $42 billion in 2023 is expected to reach more than $78 billion by 2033. FMI's research found that the growth in demand is not limited to the Jewish market, but is coming from all religious communities. The study highlighted that people are becoming more health conscious and seek wholesome, allergen-free food products, which is driven driving the increase in demand for kosher food. Furthermore, new consumer segments are placing their trust in the authenticity of kosher food. That was Kosher Was Going Up. This last one is called Kosher MREs by JL. When a U.S. Navy ship is about to sail, set sail and kosher meals are needed, Labruit, L-A-B-R-I-U-T-E, goes into action. 
Labruit Meals is the only approved supplier of kosher rations by the Department of Defense worldwide and supplies ready-to-eat kosher meals to all military and National Guard branches. Sampaglet Kosher MRES comes in many options, including chicken royale with brown rice, hickory smoked beef, jalapeno curry beef, pasta marinara, and veggie chili. We are all thankful that our Jewish service members can meet the rigorous requirements of the armed forces that they do not need to sacrifice their religious beliefs to stay properly nourished. That's kosher MREs, and those are all from Michigan's kosher style section. All right, here's something from a section from called Nosh, and uh, this is called A Diamond in the Dough by Deborah Eckerling. There's nothing better than a rainbow cookie or an almond horn or some Russian coffee cake. Doug Weinstein, who owns and operates the Diamond Bakery, 335 North Fairfax Avenue in Los Angeles, says. Weinstein took over the Fairfax staple in June 2021. The bakery became employee-owned during COVID, and they were just going to let that piece of history fade away. Weinstein couldn't let that happen. I wanted to perpetuate the traditions of Jewish baking, he says. There used to be five Jewish bakers on Fairfax. Now there's this and Cantor's, and Cantor's is more of a deli than a bakery, Weinstein says. It just seemed like such a shanda to let such an iconic place go with such history go. An iconic Jewish-owned business, the Diamond Bakery was started in 1946 by Jack and Betty Siegel. In 1969, it was sold to two couples, the Lotmans and the Rubensteins, who met in Auschwitz in 1944 before liberation by the Allied forces. After World War II, they immigrated to the United States and landed in Detroit, where they developed their skills as bakers for, before relocating to L.A. Throughout the decades, Diamond Bakery expanded from a small retail operation to a fully equipped wholesale bakery. The Lotman and Rubenstein families ran baker, the bakery for 50 years, stepping away in early 2020. It was employee-run for about a year before Weinstein took over. I can't believe it's been almost two years, Weinstein says. We employ 15 people and we give to the community. We're here for our customers and we keep everything as authentic as we can. A classically trained bakery, pastry, culinary veteran with 35 years of experience, Weinstein became a fan of baking and cooking when he was a little kid. His aunt B and grandma lived together and they were always baking. I would walk down the street through the backyard and into their house, he recalls. They would sit me on the table and hand me cookies. They would be cooking or baking and arguing about who's doing it right or wrong. And I fell in love with the whole process with them. At the age of 13, Weinstein got his first job washing windows and sweeping floors of the, for the corner pizza place in exchange for pastrami sandwiches. One day, the dough guy, the dough guy didn't show up. The owner, the owner said, kid, come here. Let me show you how to make the dough. So I was making balls of dough. And then the pizza guy didn't show up. So I was spinning pizzas. I just loved it. Weinstein has worked in some of the best-known establishments in Southern California, including Western Century Plaza Hotel, Western South Coast Plaza, Regent Beverly Hills, Regent Beverly Wilshire Hotel, Checkers Hotel, the Broadway Deli, and more. He has also used his culinary skills to benefit the Jewish community in Long Beach and most recently Santa Barbara, where he also lives. Among other mitzvahs, he established the Hala program for the Santa Barbara Jewish Federation, 
which, de which delivers up to 200 halot per week, as well as additional baked items for our holidays and special events. Doug has also taught classes at Congregation B'nai B'rith in SB, uh, Temple of Israel in Long Beach, and via Zoom as host of Get Baked with, Doug, with Chef Doug. Weinstein was raised with Sedaka. His parents were involved with the synagogue. If someone needed something, my parents were always there to contribute, he says, and that's what Weinstein learned. I didn't need a bakery, he said. I wasn't looking for a project, but I just couldn't let Diamond Bakery die. Diamond also does uh, contra uh, contract baking for companies such as Shappy's Pretzels. They supply the recipes and Diamond fulfills the orders. They'll come in and give us the specifications of what they want and we make it, he explains. I like to uh, help people make their dreams come true, Weinstein continues. If we can get them started and they can get to a point where it makes sense for them to get their own place, great. While Diamond Bakery is probably best known for its challah, they carry many delicious baked goods. Side note, they also have a great coffee bar with espresso, lattes, cappuccinos, and a great drip coffee by Peerless Coffee. Weinstein's plans include putting in a refrigerated case to display their dairy delights, such as cheesecake, rainbow cookie, seven-layer cake, raspberry nut cake, sweet kugel, and more. I want to start doing traditional Jewish things with a modern twist, he explains. I also want to start featuring Jewish traditional baked goods and desserts from different regions of the world. Weinstein did a Yemenite Jewish cooking class for the eighth graders at the synagogue a couple of years ago, and uh, a couple of years ago, and, they, and would love to do another program, love to do other programs like that in the bakery. It's a way to be a little more create creative, but also draw people in. He said, after all, it is a community bakery. One Weinstein also has be has been going to since he was a kid. His family moved to Los Angeles in 1975 when Weinstein was 12. I don't really own Diamond Bakery, Weinstein says. I'm just the current steward of it. People's memories of Diamond Bakery keep them coming back. There are people who come in every day and say, I've been coming here since I was seven years old. My grandma would bring me in and give me a sprinkle cookie, he shares. Weinstein hopes those guests start bringing their grandkids so they can create new memories with the next generation. Does it take a mensch to save a bakery? Probably. Does it take someone who grew up with a love of food to save a bakery? Absolutely. Doug Weinstein is both. I love banking, Weinstein says. I love the fact that I can make something beautiful and then watch people eating go, Oh my God, that's amazing. That was A Diamond in the Dough by Deborah Eckling from the Nosh section. Wait, we go on now to the entertainment section. This is called Modi. Mordecai Rosenfeld, who has been called the next Jackie Mason, is an Orthodox Jew who happens to be married to a man by Naomi Pfefferman. The comedian Mordecai Rosenfeld, who goes by the stage name Modi, is an Orthodox Jew who happens to be married to a man and whose distinctly Jewish act is intricate knowledge and intricate knowledge of Judaism draws sold-out audiences from Reformed to ultra-Orthodox communities, as well as non-Jews all over the world. The New York Times has called the 53-year-old comic, who will perform at the Saban Theater in Beverly Hills on June 8th, the next Jackie Mason. The Hollywood Reporter lauded him as one of the top ten comedians in New York. 
and Jamie Masada, owner of the Laugh Factory in Los Angeles, has said that Rosenfeld elicits the same kind of adulations as Robin Williams and Richard Pryor. Not to mention that in 2018, then-New York Mayor Bill de Blasio declared June 26th Mordecai Modi Rosenfeld Day for his artistry and contributions to the community. During a recent Zoom interview from the New York home, Rosenfeld shares with his husband and manager Leo Vega, the comic wore black, his signature short beard, and and a reserved manner compared to his bold stand-up persona. The comedian said he shares a small copy of the Zohar in his pocket during his performances. I'm not a comedian who happens to be Jewish. I'm a Jewish comedian, he said. On stage, I'm far more Jewish than gay. He hilariously riffs on the Jew- on the cultural differences between Sephardic and Ashkenazi Jews, as well as the Jewish perspective on TV shows such as Succession and The Crown. Rosenfeld also addresses issues of Holocaust denial and anti-Semitism. In a joke that went viral online, he quipped that it's not so smart to arrange for anti-Semites to visit Holocaust museums. It just gives them ideas, he said. As for his recent DNA test, he said, Nazis and Kanye are my number one health risk. <coughs> asked if there are any boundaries he won't cross in his ass, he said, I won't cross a line if it isn't funny. Even so, Rosenfeld carefully tailors his sets to suit his patrons on a particular night. For non-Jews, he explains more about his Jewish content. And for the ultra-Orthodox, he, can, he draws on his extensive grasp of Jewish law and culture, in part derived from his attendance at a Chabad Lubatich yeshiva as a young man. They don't need gay material, he said of his observant fans. They need material for their own audiences. Even though ultra-Orthodox communities view homosexual relationships as sinful, Rosenfeld said, he hasn't experienced any kind of criticism except the rare troll online. If an organization told them they were uncomfortable with them being gay, he added, they won't get, uh, get me to perform for them. Rosenfeld moved with his family from Tel Aviv to Woodmere, Long Island, New York, when he was seven. He said he grew up in a traditional, kosher-style Israeli home. Modi was drawn to Judaism from an early age. I used to love to go to listen to the cantor in a conservative synagogue in our area because it was like watching an opera every Saturday, he recalls. I always found books to read about Judaism and Torah and synagogue. I was drawn to it more than the rest of my family was. It was just my neshoma, my soul. Growing up, he said, he'd watch the Chabad Lebovich Rebbe Menachem Mendel Schneerzen speak whenever he recorded a televised version of his Farbrengens. I was mesmerized by them, Rosenfeld said. I really felt a connection to the Rebbe. Never mind that Schneerson believed that gay love was off limits. What I love about Chabad is that in broad strokes, it's about helping other people, he said. On Rosenfeld's podcast, and here's Modi, co-hosted by comedian and author Periel Asherbrand, with appearances by Rosenfeld's husband Vega, one real treat was interviewing the Rebbe's Yiddish-to-English translator, Rabbi Manus Friedman, he said. Rosenfeld attended a Chabad yeshiva while also enrolled at Boston University. It was almost like it was in both of them at once, he said. His journey to comedy was more unconventional. He began his career as a vice president at Merrill Lynch in New York. I was working in the international division, where there were many different people with different accents, he recalled. 
I went to imitate them to my friends and we, when we hung out. And my friend said, you should do this on stage. Rosenfeld decided to try his luck at a stand-up comedy club on open mic night, a performance he vividly remembers. I was there in a suit because I had come from work. And I was watching the other comedians as they were bombing, he said. And then I went on, and something felt very natural and great. The club's owner said, you should come back and do this again. And that's how it all began. When someone suggested that he perform in resorts in the Catskills Mountains, a traditionally Jewish vacation destination, he replied, just call me Moses. After balancing stand-up and Wall Street jobs for some six years, Rosenfeld went to comedy full-time. He said his career started taking off in spades when he incorporated more of his Judaism into his act some years ago. Since then, he's been selling out venues worldwide, including in Israel, and for Jewish groups such as Young Israel Congregations and the Republican Jewish Coalition. He also performed on mainstream platforms, including CBS, NBC, HBO, Comedy Central, and The Howard Stern Show, where he and the Shock Jocks sing the blessing that is chanted before a Torah reading. Howard is a big Jewish soul, Rosenfeld said. His approach to his diverse groups is to know your audience, he continued. I feel what, what the room needs, what jokes should be able to work and deliver them. As for his non-Jewish audience, he performs the Jewish material that they would understand. It's often more feeding off of some stereotypes they might have about Jewish people and taking, and taking it from there. Rosenfeld has joked that about everything from J-Swipe to his Israeli mother. During a recent performance in South Florida, he quipped of Jews, Why does this world hate us? We're the only religion not looking to recruit people. Every other religion's main goal is that you join. We're the opposite. Our main goal is just leave us alone, according to the Boca Raton Observer. Rosenfeld is also a Hassan, having studied at the Bell's School of Jewish Music at Yeshiva University, and sometimes sings at his modern Orthodox shul, the 6th Street Community Synagogue in the East Village. He lays tefillin daily and keeps Shabbat as well as a kosher home with his husband, Vega, who was raised Catholic, but now knows considerably more about Judaism than the average Jew. On stage and off, the comedian hopes to channel what he calls Moshiach Messiah energy into the universe. It's about working to bring light into the world, he said. Hopefully, I can bring positive Jewish energy to both Jews and non-Jews. Comedy, he added, is a calling. It's a way to help people spiritually, which is what the Talmud talks about. I'd say it gives me a high. That was Modi by Naomi Pfefferman from the Entertainment Section. For more for information about Modi and his upcoming shows, visit www.modilive.com. To tune into Rosenfeld's weekly podcast, check Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and YouTube, among other sources. Okay, now let's read some articles from the Jewish Journal for June 6th to the 22nd, 2023. From the My Turn section, If fake news is the hammer, fake audiences are the anvil. By Hen Mazig. Social media has given birth to a new breed of celebrities. They are called influencers. People you have never heard of are shaping opinions, driving trends, and even swaying purchasing decisions. More often than not, their seeming off-the-cuff remarks on Instagram or TikTok are carefully curated messages. Successful influencers are rewarded with perks, freebies, travel, and lots of money. 
The big rewards for what is largely unregulated behavior has attracted some shadowy characters to the game. Some influencers are compensated by such measures as the number of followers they attract. A whole cottage industry of paid-for fake followers is thriving. It is the same with another measure called engagement. Artificial engagement is a flourishing and obviously unethical trend among people who want to appear more influential than they really are. As the Jewish community is becoming more aware of the threat posed by online anti-Semitism, real dangers spearheaded by influencers with genuine audiences, we must identify uh, both well. We must identify both well-meaning and underhanded activities, activists with, who willingly misrepresent their influence. In the critical battle for social media predominance, too many Jewish organizations, philanthropists, and genuinely good-hearted Jewish professionals lack the tools and understanding to identi identify genuine versus, for, uh, versus inadvertently misrepresented and even fake influence. This becomes a painful exercise of throwing good money uh, after bad. One of the reasons I co-founded the Tel Aviv Institute, a data-driven research laboratory for social media influence, is that I recognize the critical importance of focusing resources on genuine, impactful social media. Working over the previous decade as a social media analyst and ad campaign manager is everything ranging from international presidential campaigns, and major venture capitalist initiatives to wine from family-owned vineyards. I gained critical experience talking to and influencing every imaginable type of audience. Years of experience and accumulated data stand behind an urgent hue and cry, which, if we are to reverse anti-Semitism online, Jewish leaders must take to heart. One of the pressing issues surrounding social media influencers is the prevalence of fake paid-for followers. The desire for higher fo uh, follower counts has led some influencers to resort to purchasing fake followers. This creates a deceptive illusion of influence. An enormous industry of fake followers has arisen thanks to a demand of wannabe influencers desperate to claim they are influential online. Regrettably, this phenomenon has not been neglected by some loud Jewish voices. Fake followers are identifiable, obviously unethical, and need to be purged from the ranks of those fighting anti-Semitism. If our fight isn't ethical, it is neither a Jewish nor a fight worth having, and we will not prevail. Fake followers not only mislead brands, but also undermine the credibility and authenticity of social media platforms. To tackle this problem, Social media platforms need to invest in better algorithms and enforcement to identify and remove fake accounts. Organizations fighting anti-Semitism must shift their focus from follower counts to evaluating real engagement and influencers' impact on their target audience. A big part of my work is assisting organizations so they, don't, so they do not waste their resources or find themselves unwittingly mired in this kind of unsavory activity. In a world dominated by sponsored content and product placements, the pursuit of authentic engagement is paramount. Genuine connection with an audience requires influencers to foster trust, transparency, and honesty. By sharing personal experiences, opening up about challenges, and genuinely interacting with their followers, bona fide influencers build meaningful relationships and inspire change. 
In fact, most public relations companies advise, ad, advising brands in the, the commercial sphere have shifted from investing big money in mega-influencers like Kim Kardashian to investing in micro-influencers. This approach yields much better uh, bang for the buck uh, than spending enormous amounts of money on big-name mega-influencers to promote artificial content. Her engagement squanders resources and renders all other potential benefits of influence meaningless. How do we identify real engagement? It helps to have a team of nine data scientists and linguists, as we have at the Tel Aviv Institute, but there are several factors anyone can evaluate. Our team recommends measuring the correlation between comments, likes, and followers, uh, followers number. If an influencer has 100 followers and only 8 people <clears throat> in average comment on their posts, it means they have an 8% engagement rate, which is excellent. But then you must look at who's commenting. Try it for yourself. Go to random Jewish influencers' accounts and look at the comments sanction. Suppose they have 100 comments and all are generic. One or two words, or only an emoji, or comments by a suspicious user name or a fan club account, unless it's, a, it's Madonna, influencers don't have fan clubs. In that case, they are likely bots, not real people. One can also go a step further and click on the commentator's profiles to determine whether they are authentic users or bots, based on their posts and the follower, followers following they have. As with any product, as demand increases, so does supply. And in a competitive marketplace, prices drop too. The sad truth is that paid-for followers and engagement now sell at enticingly low prices through dark channels. For $10,000, an unethical influencer can acquire 1 million fake followers on Instagram. <clears throat> For less than $5, the same person can buy 100 fake likes. There are dozens of bot farms supplying this product. I have visited the social media underworld of cyber sweatshops where 20 or more man-made or 20 more man droids run hundreds of fake personal accounts. When an influencer in need of followers likes emojis and admiring uh, comments shows up with cash, they deliver the product amorally and efficiently. When the commercial aspects of influenced marketing are well while the commercial aspects of influence marketing are well known, social media influencers have great potential to make a difference for causes that extend beyond promoting products. These individuals can be powerful advocates for social, uh, social environmental, and humanitarian issues by leveraging their reach and influence. Engaging genuine influencers in authentic partnerships with nonprofits and charitable organizations can amplify awareness and inspire action. Influencers can use their platforms to educate their audience about critical issues, encourage donations, and drive tangible change. However, as we have learned through extensive analysis, such case-related collaboration simply does not work unless it is driven by genuine passion and comment, commitment. Influencers who ask to be paid for posting about a cause they supposedly believe in are driving you and your organization down the mercenary motorway. Despite the temptation to get much exposure, these paid collaborators extract a significant moral and practical cost. 
The fees charged by influencers for sponsored content can be astronomical when they promote a product. This disparity perpetuates inequality and limits the potential for positive change. Platforms, brands, organizations, and influencers must explore alternative models that balance compensation with impact. The realm of social media influencers is a double-edged sword. It has enormous potential to bring about positive change for the Jewish community. It has the same potential for counterproductive manipulation. Tackling the issue of paid-for fake followers emphasizes authentic engagement, harnessing influencers' power for social causes, and addressing the costs associated with collaboration and with collaboration are crucial steps toward realizing the true potential of the digital age. By encouraging transparency, accountability, and genuine passion, we can transform the influencer landscape into a force for authenticity, impact, and lasting change. That was If Fake News is the Hammer, Fake Audiences are the Anvil by Hen Mazik from the My Turn section. Hen Mazik is an Israeli author, digital media enthusiast, and the co-founder of TLVI.org, a research laboratory for online influence. All right, and also from the My Turn section, this is called At the Heart of a Complicated Legacy by Rabbi Haim Steinmetz. Oscar Schindler is an inconvenient hero. Without question, what he did during the Holocaust was exceptional. He risked his own life and time and time again to save over 1,300 Jews. But Schindler was no saint. He spied for Abwehr, the counterintelligence arm of the German military in Czechoslovakia, and played a critical role in helping the Nazis take over that country. He was a hard-drinking man who died of liver disease, a womanizer who neglected his wife, and after the war, he would constantly make financial demands on those he saved. Schindler remains an enigma, an exceptional hero at one period of his life who lived very differently for the rest of it. Complicated legacies are difficult to uh, disentangle. A figure like Paul Gauguin, who abandoned his family to pursue his artistic aspirations, still challenges those who evaluate his biography. Do his cultural contributions mitigate his moral failures? While art historians and even philosophers might be willing to overlook his flaws, his family would undoubtedly have a very different perspective. The Talmud grapples with this question when discussing the life of Elisha ben Avuya, who who embittered by Roman persecution, abandoned Judaism. He is called Acher, the other one, because the rabbis don't want to pronounce his name. He is seen as a traitor who abandoned the Jews in their time of need. The Talmud declares that Acher can never repent and is banished from the world to come. Yet Elisha ben Avuya's devoted disciple, Rabbi Meir, prays for him to be brought to heaven. Rabbi Meir cannot bear to imagine a beloved teacher languishing in hell. Acher is at once a despised heretic and a beloved teacher, and his legacy remains a matter of controversy. And this goes to the crux of the matter. How complicated legacies are disentangled depends on who's looking at them. Children have a unique relationship with their parents, and both villains and heroes are seen in a very different light by their own families. Jay Nordlinger wrote a book about how the children of brutal dictators, children of monsters, where he explores the very different ways they see their own father's legacy.
On the other hand, how we see historical figures is in many ways a look at the mirror. Evaluations of them often vary depending on one's political viewpoint and frequently change with the times. There are ample examples of revisionism where historical assessments are modified to better fit with contemporary attitudes. The case of the generation of the desert offers a lesson on how difficult it is to judge a complicated legacy. The Mishnah in Perkei Avot says that the Jews tested God ten times during the forty years in the desert. It is a time of complaints, cowardice, and betrayal. They build an idol when Moses is slow to return from Mount Sinai. They rebel against Moses' leadership during the episode of the spies and do so again in the direction of Korah. Throughout the book of Numbers, the Jews complain and complain again. Some of the complaints are readily understandable in instances when they don't have water or food or when they face a large army. Some of the complaints, like the one on Parsha, Beha, Alo, Alatha, are unreasonable. Instead of being appreciative of their freedom, they begin to hound Moses for meat. The Hebrew word to describe their complaining, Kimetan, Kimetonanim, Numbers 11.1, elicits multiple negative interpretations about their comment, uh, commentaries. To Ramban, this word reflects bitterness, the broken soul of worried ex-slaves. However, Zephorno sees the complainers as insincere. It is as if they were complaining, but not out of worry or fear, they just wanted to grumble. Ibn Ezra sees their complaint as reflecting an evil an evil motivation, and Rashi concurs, saying the complainers were looking for a way to distance themselves from God. In short, their incessant whining is ind indicative that they are lacking both character and faith. The quick and easy verdict on the generation of the desert is that they were moral failures. However, it is not that simple. The full story of the generation of the desert is hidden from the text. The Torah is silent about most of their lives. There are no events recorded for 38 of the 40 years in the desert. This lack of information conspires against the generation of the desert and encourages us to condemn them. We only hear about their failures, not their day-to-day -day lives. Certainly, they must have done some good during those 38 years, but how good were they? This issue is debated in the Talmud San Sanhedrin 110b. It explains, the generation of the desert have no share in the world to come. That is the view of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Eliezer uh, says that they were so pious that about them the book of Psalms 50 and 5 declares, Gather my pious together to me those that have uh, entered my covenant. Rabbi Eliezer offers a revisionist view of the generation of the desert. He puts aside their complaints against Moshe and their lack of faith in God, and instead focuses on the rest of the years they were in the desert. The Talmud explains Rabbi Eliezer was inspired by the verse in Jeremiah 2.2, which says, Thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you followed me into the desert, in a land that is barren. Following God into the barren desert is a profound act of faith. What about the complaining, the times that they tested God? Clearly, Rabbi Eliezer recognizes the generation of the desert was quite imperfect. But for all of their failings, 
This generation did continue forward, and one must recognize that survival alone is heroic for a group of runaway slaves. One needs to see the positive in a complicated legacy. Rabbi Elisa does offer a rather generous reading of this generation's legacy. It is fascinating that Rabbi Akiva, the eternal optimist, the one who always sees the best in human nature, takes a hard line on the generation of the desert. As the Talmud puts it, Rabbi Akiva left behind his kindness in this case. Why does Rabbi Akiva do this? I would speculate that it has a lot to do with his historic perspective. Rabbi Akiva dreamt of the Jews overtaking the Romans and was the foremost rabbinic supporter of the Bar Kokhba rebellion. This would require stoic courage, a willingness to battle, and accept losses. Survival alone would not suffice. That is why Rabbi Akiva needed to condemn the generation of the desert. Their spinelessness and dissension are the opposite of what is needed in a rebellion. Rabbi Akiva needed his own generation uh, to despise cowardice. In this particular case, current events suggest a particular interpretation of a complicated legacy. As I mentioned before, family members wrestle with this subject as well. In my role as a rabbi, I've watched families contend with complicated legacies at funerals as they prepare for their eulogies. There are many such scenarios. Some include great leaders who were abusive parents and predatory felons who were loving husbands. More difficult to unwind are the legacies of people whose relationships change. Parents who are estranged from their children only to re-enter their lives years later or those who go in the opposite direction and disengage from their children later in life. Such eulogies will often latch onto the few good years at the end. A similar perspective is offered by teshuva, repentance, which is which sees the person's character uh, at the end of their life to be determinative. But not every complicated relationship follows a timeline. Some have good and bad interdispersed. Rabbi Eliezer offers a different way to interpret complicated legacies. He is willing to listen to the silences in the record and hear echoes of goodness. He appreciates how difficult the position of the generation in the desert was, and yet even so, they did end up being the parents of a generation of pioneers, whom they carried to the doorstep of the promised land. There is another story hidden in between the lines of the, of the text, and in their own struggle with complicated legacies, many family members use Rabbi Eliezer's approach. Years ago, I performed a very small unveiling, which was attended by the late woman's child and another friend. The woman had suffered from serious mental illness all of her adult years, and she had pushed her son away from a very young age. He never had an opportunity to form a loving relationship with his mother. I asked him at the unveiling if he had any memories of her that he thought he should share. The son thought for a moment and said he remembered one time when he was sick. His mother, concerned about his welfare, made him a cup of tea and brought it to his bed. He explained that it was the one moment he could see through the veil of mental illness and experience his mother's love. In his heart, the son could hear a voice of love breaking through all of the confusion in a, of a complicated legacy. That was At the Heart of a Complicated Legacy by Rabbi Chaim Steinmetz from the My Turn section. Rabbi Chaim Steinmetz is the senior rabbi of Congregation Kehilat Leshrun in New York.
Alright, also from the My Turn section, this is called A Love Letter to Our Community Mikvah by Rabbi Chova Lebovich Douglas. A Jewish tradition states that before a Jewish community can build a synagogue or purchase a Torah, the most precious commodity we are obligated to create is a mikvah, the ritual bath. Some rabbis, like the Hofetz Chaim, even state that it is forbidden to consider residing in a city without one. Judaism articulates this requirement in various ways, and at points even suggests that a Jewish community is obligated to maintain and keep a mikvah at all costs, even if it requires selling a Torah. We see this truth present throughout archaeological evidence, uh, generation after generation. Mikvahs are an integral part of Jewish communal living and of Jewish life. Yet at this moment, in my beloved home of Los Angeles, with the abundance of wealth and as many Torahs as a community needs, we find ourselves in a moment of potential loss and perhaps reckoning. The American Jewish University, which has housed the community in Mikvah since 1981, has attempted to sell its campus and thus potentially close the doors of its beloved space. This mikvah is the only one of its kind in Southern California. It is a ritual space for transitions and ceremonies that welcomes everyone and is accessible to Jews of all denominations, cultures, age, gender, race, sexual orientation, or abilities. As a female conservative rabbi, it is the only mikvah in Los Angeles I can use and the only mikvah the majority of Jews can use to facilitate conversions and celebrate important milestones. If we were to imagine that a Beit Midrash is the mind of the Jewish community and a synagogue is the heart of the Jewish community, there is an argument to be made that a mikvah is the soul of the Jewish community. It is the space that houses the most essential and intimate transitional moments in a Jewish person's life. These are the sacred moments of the in-between, ones of pain and cries of joy. The mikvah is the ancient ritual tool of holding them all. Unlike most aspects of Jewish life, little knowledge of or Jewish literacy is required for an individual to enter a mikvah. This makes it a space that is inherently non-hierarchical and one of equity. An individual only needs to walk in, walk in with an open heart and be ready for a potential shift in their worldview. The mikvah also has a beautiful, mystical, and deeply spiritual rooted aspect. The divine feminine can be associated with the space due to the ritual purity laws traditionally observed by women over the years. While there are always complexities and patriarchal systems attached to these purity laws and some, and some mikvahs, when a mikvah is done right, the space can harbor an energy created by women and for women over our history. There is nothing more powerful nor soulful than this notion. In a world that bends towards masculine energy, there is a craving for us to be in a space reminding us of the feminine energy which a mikvah encompasses. The community mikvah in Los Angeles is a space I feel blessed to have been connected to for many years. Unlike others in the most traditional Jewish world, it is an open mikvah and is therefore available to everyone. This also applies to the marginalized and those of us who need an egalitarian and queer-friendly space and, most importantly, a ritual bath that sees the person without them needing to uh, contort into another version of themselves. 
On any given day, these waters can house a person choosing to become Jewish, someone celebrating their gender affirmation, a bride, a groom, a cancer survivor, a B'nai Bat Bar Mitzvah student, a postpartum mother, a woman grieving, a pregnancy, a pregnancy loss, someone holding grief that cannot be consoled, or someone celebrating a year of recovery. The list goes on and on. I personally have witnessed miracles in the mikvah, uh, individuals who have felt blocked or stuck, and with one immersion, <clears throat> all of a sudden are suddenly liberated and able to be exactly who they need to be. This particular mikvah is also home to all of us liberal rabbis for our conversion students from all denominations and beyond. It is miraculous that so many theolo theologies, philosophies, politics, and theories of how to be Jewish can all function similarly in the community mikvah. In other words, this mikvah is the nexus for almost all of Southern California's Jewish communities and maybe one of the few things we can agree is necessary for our community. As Angelinos, we are living through a moment of reckoning, reconciliation, and potential repair. We have an opportunity to do the powerful work of teshuva, making right was what was wrong while touching our community's soul. We can take this sign of the AJU sale falling through as divine intervention, or rather a divine invitation to ask the larger questions beneath the surface that are encouraged by this particular episode. These questions are not the ones that are on the surface, such as how to turn programs into revenue streams. A mikvah is not a money maker, but rather a mitzvah maker and ritualist meaning maker. A mikvah sustains our community precisely because it doesn't deal with superficial questions. After all, the priority of the mikvah is for the individual. The ripples from a mikvah affect our community through the individual's experience, a contrary way of thinking about living and a necessary one. Its pure integrity is countercultural. The mikvah is the life force water, the energetic cleanser that sees the person for who they are and holds a space for them to move through. There is little to show about this because its essence is just to be. Each of us must ask ourselves a larger and more existential question. Do we care about this particular way of being Jewish, one that values one's soul at a time which is uh, countercultural to how society wants us to live? We must ask this because it is the question prevalent in the moment of awakening and reckoning in our city and our, in our world, and the soul of our Jewish community depends on it. That was a love letter to our community mikvah by Rabbi Tova Lebovich Douglas from the My Turn section. Rabbi Tova Lebovich Douglas is a spiritual counselor, ritualist, and teacher based in Los Angeles. You can find more at Rabbi underscore Tova or Rabbi Tova dot com. Right, and again from the My Turn section, a Barbanel, a man of many worlds revealed in a new film by Toby Klein Greenwald. Rabbi Barrow Wine, executive producer and Ashley Lazarus, director and writer, along with co-writer Jesse Kogan, have delivered another groundbreaking film, Arba a Barbanel, a man of many worlds, about the enigmatic Torah commentator who lived from 1437 to 1508. Rabbi Wine is known for his articles, books, educational films, and auto-recordings on Torah and Jewish history. Previous films include 
Rashi, A Light After the Dark Ages, and Rambam, The Story of Maimonides, created with Lazarus. The late Leonard Nimoy played the voices of both Rashi and Rambam, and Rashi was narrated by the late Paul Schofield. These films have been seen in more than a thousand Jewish schools of every denomination. The creators of this meticulously researched Abarbanel film say they did it with such with a much tighter budget than their past productions. Nevertheless, the film's visuals and music are breathtaking, as are the excellent narration of voice actors whose dialogue as the historical characters keep viewers engaged and intrigued. As the at the world premiere held in Jerusalem, Rabbi Wein said, the Jewish people are built of heroes, but we don't know every anything about the people. The Rambam lived in a Muslim society and Rashi in a Christian society. We might think that Rashi had no responsibilities and that Rambam sat under the protection of the Sultan. But if you study their lives, it's miraculous that they, uh, that they produced anything. The Torah is multifaceted. Rashi and Rambam are not alike, but they are the pillars upon which the Jewish world rests. I wanted to make a third film in this genre about someone who could not be put in a box, the Arbabano. He was a Torah scholar, a philosopher, knowledgeable in science and medicine, a financial advisor to kings and empires. He lived in most turbulent times. The, Arba the Arbabanel was a leader of Spanish Jewry at the time of the Inquisition and the expulsion of the Jews from Spain. He was a hero even his defeat, said Rabbi Wine. He couldn't reverse the exile, but his heroism was in not taking the easy way out. He was one of the most exemplary figures in Jewish history. Lazarus also spoke before the screening. First of all, thank you to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. This is a miracle. When I was told Abal Sedaka, donor, the late Leon Skragowitz of the, challenge, of, the, of the challenges in making Jewish films, he said, we have a Jewish historian, Rabbi Wan. We have a filmmaker, you, Ashley, and me, I write checks. Where is your emuna, faith? There is a, a Barbano family association of approximately 3,000 descendants of the commentator, and some of them were also among the 22 donors to help financially create this film. Lazarus said that to make the film affordable, we sourced classic paintings from museums and art galleries around the world. We used photographs of locations and commissioned six artists to create all the dialogue scenes in original oil paintings and hand-drawn colored illustrations. Seven artists from Bangladesh, Indonesia, Israel, Kazakhstan, China, and England were hired to create original art for the film. The jet engine of the film is its outstanding soundtrack. We went the extra mile in creating the music and sound effects, and we auditioned over 100 voice actors for, to find the best cast possible. The Abar Banel was raised in a world of privilege among, no, among nobility and was educated in both Jewish and classical studies by his father, Judah Abar Banel, who was an advisor to the king in Castile and by the best rabbis and teachers. Like his father, he became a man of many worlds. Jonathan Ray, professor of Jewish studies at Georgetown University, says the film, in the film, the persecutions, murder, and forced conversions of Jews to Christianity quickly spread throughout Castile and the neighboring Spanish territories. Judah Abarbanel 
uh, sought safety in Portugal with his family. He was appointed advisor to King Edward Duarte, and the Jews flourished. We see the complex historical wars that ensue, including the bitter rivalries within royal families, and the Abarbano always found uh, himself at the eye of the storm. In the midst of all this, he wrote his first books at the age of 20. Then he started working on his a commentary on the Torah. In the course of the upheavals and competing loyalties, Arbabanel has an had an edict of issuing against him in Portugal, and he escaped to neighboring Spain. Many Jews who remained in Spain were Maranos, most of whom practiced their Judaism in secret. The Abarbanel continued writing his commentary. Yitzhak Gettinger, rabbi of young Israel of the west side of New York, another commentator in the film, says the Abarbanel's commentary and his passionate study of Torah have to be seen and understood in the context of how we saw the times he was living in and the past history of Jewish exile, especially in Spain. Eventually, Arbabano's family was able to leave Portugal and reunite with him in Spain, where he became the financial advisor to a Jewish bank in Toledo. He flourished there when he continued writing his commentaries. But King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella needed his financial experience in helping to fund the war against the Muslims in Grenada. They asked him to be a treasurer and advisor to the royal court of Spain. He thought that perhaps being close to power would help him to be a voice for the Jews at a time that the church was encouraging the king and queen to rid Spain of its foreign influences. In the year 711, the Muslims had invaded the Iberian Peninsula and ruled southern Spain until 1492. It is described in the film as a golden era for Jews when they lived in harmony with their Muslim neighbors. A major challenge for Ferdinand and Isabella was the converso problem. As Jonathan Ray explained, eventually they petitioned the Pope to have their own Spanish Inquisition. It appeared that the golden age of the Jews in Spain was soon to come to an end. In addition to Arbabano finding the money to fight the ongoing war in Grenada against the Muslims, the king and queen pressured him to find the money for Christopher Columbus's expedition to India and the Far East, which would give Spain a larger share of the spice trade. Torquemada, the Grand Inquisitor and the Queen's Confessor, convinced her that any Jew who does not convert should leave Spain. Ray said that technically the Inquisition didn't have any power over professing Jews. They did have power over the new Christians. Conversos who were found guilty of heresy were given the chance to recant, sometimes paying a large fine to the Inquisition. Others were burnt at the stake. Torquemada believed that as long as there were real Jews helping him to be Jewish, helping them to be Jewish, the Conversos would never be true Catholics. So in 1483, he begins, his recommended, he begins to recommend the expulsion of the Jews. Grenada fell in the late 1491 and was back in Christian hands, and the flag was raised over the Alhambra Palace. Less than three months later, on March 31, 1492, the Edicto de Granada, the Alhambra Decree, was issued by Ferdinand and Isabella. All Jews must leave by the end of July and not return on pain of death. Arba Banel and Abraham Sr., the chief tax former and an advocate for the Jewish community, raised 300,000 gold ducats, and they hoped that this feat would change their royal minds. It didn't. 
On June 7, 1492, Abraham Sr. and his family converted to Christianity. An estimated 200,000 Jews demoralized also accepted baptism. Approximately 100,000 Jewish men, women, and children chose exile. The Arba Banal proudly carried a Sefer Torah, who was, uh, was followed by thousands of Jews who began their journey to Palos and other ports to board ships that took them into exile. Three, three days after the expulsion, on August 3rd, Rosh Hodesh Av, Christopher Columbus, set sail from Palos to India, an expedi expedition that Arba Banal had helped fund that discovered the New World. Arbarbanel continued writing his commentaries. Toward the end of his life, he wrote in his introduction to his commentary on the prophets, I spent so much time serving moral kings. I regret not having spent more time serving the king of kings. He died at 71 in 1508. On December 16, 1968, the Alhambra Decree was officially revoked by the Spanish government. The cruel and tumultuous times covered in this film are long past, but the Arba Banal's commentaries live on. Anyone interested in pre-ordering the film can find information at www.rabbiwine.com or at 732-987-9008. When the film is available, it will be found at www.rabbiwine.com slash A-B-A-R-B-A-N-E-L. That was Abar Banal, a man of many worlds revealed in a new film by Toby Klein Greenwald from the My Turn section. Toby Klein Greenwald is an award-winning journalist and theater director and editor-in-chief of WholeFamily.com. Right, again, from the My Turn section, this is called With Trump, All Bets Are Off by Thane Rosenbaum. The poker table of American politics now officially has no limits. Anything goes. But bet with you whatever you wish, it won't matter. The House never loses unless it's the White House. We're having yet another crisis in American confidence. The dashboard of our democracy always seems to be flashing red. Do our institutions actually work? We're long out of warranty, so some reassurance would be nice. Don't bet on it. Every branch of our government is holding up like a twig. The public legitimacy of the Supreme Court is at an all-time low. Last year, a draft opinion overturning Roe v. Wade was leaked. Last week, the Justice Department leaked an indictment against Donald Trump in connection with the documents he removed from the Oval Office brought to Florida, and then played three-card Monty with the return. Leaks overflow, and this time we can't blame climate change. Are any of Richard Nixon's plumbers available? At least they have the right resumes for this line of work. Of course, the gravamen of our decline is largely being spent on Donald Trump. Everything about him, from the day he first announced his candidacy for the White House, has been unprecedented. The rallies, the access Hollywood tape, the insults and impulsivity, the two impeachment trials, none were ever seen before in American politics. And he liked it that way. And so did most of the people who voted for him. For a man who sat on a golden toilet, Trump curiously galvanized the great American unwashed. No one has ever made better use of bad publicity. The worse it gets, the more energized he seemingly becomes and the more devoted his base response. He's already the first American president to be criminally indicted in New York State Court, and he will soon be the first president indicted in federal court in Miami. 
And yet, with these two pending criminal matters, he is leading in the field, handily among, among Republican candidates for president. That's why there is no reason to believe that this is the end of his legal troubles. Expect more cases coincided with the primary elections to be filed with the, by, by prosecutors in Georgia, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C., and the Attorney General in New York. We should, prepare, be, we should prepare for an election in which the leading Republican contender, who may perhaps be the presidential frontrunner, will campaign on courthouse steps while out on bail. America's most celebrated and loathed criminal defendant could conceivably recapture the Oval Office and then, as a first act, pardon himself to avoid prison. It's no laughing matter. A majority of Americans will not accept the optics of a former president shuffling from courtroom to courtroom, defending himself against the Biden Justice Department and Blue City Democratic prosecutors. It's not a good look. Our standing in the world and our pretense to the rule of law will suffer. The constitutional guarantees of due process and fundamental fairness apply to former presidents, too. This is Trump derangement syndrome reaching epic level, epidemic levels. And it betrays a self-righteousness among Trump haters that when it comes to the former president, anything goes as long as it might put an end to his political career. This piling on saboteur tactics brought by partisan Democrats during an election year is not how the legal system is to, is to be used. If Donald Trump has not declared his intent to mount another campaign for the presidency, not a single one of those cases would be filed. Lawyers are taking liberties with our justice system. Many believe that Trump must be stopped no matter what legal principle gets trampled. Trump falsely claimed that the 2020 election was stolen, but he will be correct when he fumes that heading into the 2024 election, Democrats try to subvert his candidacy and poison his prospects by forcing him into a perpetual perp walk. The cases against him thus far are weak and the government faces high legal hurdles. In New York, he paid hush money to a porn star, a perfectly legal transaction. His intent was clear to buy her silence about their affair. He wasn't trying to indirectly make a donation to his campaign in violation of election laws. In Florida, the documents he removed and retained from the White House were not destroyed nor shared with a foreign entity. They remain intact and are now safely out of his hands. Should he have kept them after the National Archives wanted, their return, wanted them returned? Of course not. But obstruction of justice is a much lower level charge than espionage. Does holding on to, uh, holding onto the documents longer than he should have made up make a former president an enemy of the state? Should he be in prison for it? We shouldn't be surprised by his transgression. Trump is forever reckless and self-destructive. The list of things he should not have done is infinite, which includes addressing the crowd at the eclipse on January 6. Prosecuting him for espionage, however, is pl uh, plainly a misapplication of the law. Espionage is reserved for Edward Snowden, Chelsea Manning, and Julian Assange, those who should have never had access to such sensitive materials in the first place. The Presidential Records Act, which leading Democrats and the mainstream media refuse to discuss, contemplates that a former president will negotiate with the National Archives to determine what, if any, documents uh, created his or her, during his or her presidency can remain in the president's possession. Trump, Barack Obama, George W. Bush, and Bill Clinton are the only Americans to whom this statute applies. If a document classified or not 
is casually discovered at one of their residences, they haven't committed espionage. Documents discovered in Joe Biden's garage, however, take, taken when he was vice president and the emails that Secretary of State Hillary Clinton destroyed on a private server are not covered under this law. Yet Trump is being treated like a foreign agent working covertly on behalf of another country. Either the mere possession of classified material in a former president's home is the crime of the century, or it's a pretext to a dispose of a political rival. It sure looks like President Biden's Justice Department is doing his bidding, lowering the boom and seeking to end this election before it even starts. It doesn't matter whether the special counsel is intentionally performing a political hit job. What matters is that it looks as if he is, especially since there appears to be little prosecutorial interest in the Bidens. This bad faith circus atmosphere sways the public's cynicism. The machinery of justice appears rigged, which is precisely what Trump has been trumpeting all along. That was with Trump, All Bets Are Off by Thane Rosenbaum from the My Turn section. Thane Rosenbaum is a novelist, essayist, law professor, and distinguished university professor at Toro University, where he directs the Forum on Life, Culture, and Society. He is a legal analyst for CBS News Radio. His most recent book is entitled Saving Free Speech from Itself. And again, from the My Turn section, this is called Why Men Should Give a Spit About Genetic Carrier Screening by David Suisa. You may have your mother's eyes or her freckles, or maybe your father's hair or his dimples. What our parents passed down to us is a source of fascination, but it's also science. Every child gets the same amount of genes from the mother and father. It's a 50-50 split. So why is it that when couples are planning to have a child, more women than men are the ones having genetic character, uh, carrier screening. Men, let's step up to the plate. Carrier screening is genetic testing that determines if you carry a variant change in a gene that may have implications for your children. Being a carrier usually doesn't affect your own health. Typically, carriers don't even know that they are carriers. But if both you and your partner are carriers for the same condition, there's a 25% chance that having a child with that condition and a 75% chance of having an unaffected child. Those are independent probabilities for each pregnancy, so there's a 25% chance each time and a 75% chance each time. You can see why it's important for men to get tested. They put in just as much genetic makeup as a woman. Just because the woman is the, is the one carrying the baby doesn't mean that she should be the only one having carrier screening. S.D. Rose a certified genetic counselor at J-Screen, a nonprofit genetic testing program based at Emory University, explains that in the earlier days of carrier screening, testing was usually done only by the female partner for a limited number of conditions based on her ethnic background. For example, if she had an Ashkenazi background, she would be screened for the Ashkenazi panel, which included diseases more common in this group, like Tay-Sachs. Then, only if she tests positive was the male partner tested. Because testing at the time was much more expensive, this testing model made sense. But now that technology has progressed and become a lot more accessible and affordable, partners can be tested at the same time. Also, the advent of saliva testing makes carrier screening much easier to administer through home testing. Carrier screening done via saliva is just as accurate as via blood. The breadth of the diseases that are screened have also increased, 
allowing individuals to have a more comprehensive understanding of their carrier status. Instead of being uh, tested just for diseases that are most common in their ethnic background, a wider net is cast to include a larger number of diseases that are common across ancestry groups. Daniela Camara, a licensed genetic counselor at UCLA David Geffen School of Medicine and a consultant for Gene Test Now, an awareness and education nonprofit that Jewish Journal helped launch and market, explains this approach. We've gone from the idea of testing individuals based on their ancestry to conducting pan-ethnic panels on everybody. The technology today is built in a way that looks at one gene and looks at and looking at 200 genes at the same is the same. So generally speaking, in today's genetics world, anybody that comes through the door for a carrier screening gets a pan-ethnic panel that looks at usually over 200 genetic conditions that are common in all different ancestries and exist in the population. For example, we know that although Tay-Sachs, yes, is more common in Ashkenazi Jews, there are plenty of people who are not Ashkenazi Jews who are also Tay-Sachs carriers. And the same goes for other diseases as well. This approach, this approach also addresses the growing mix of the population, not just with inter interfaith couples, but marriage within the Jewish community between individuals of Sephardic, Mizrahi, Persian, and Ashkenazi descent. What if you've already had done a, a genetic test with a company like 23andMe? Does that mean you don't need any additional carrier screening? Rose argues that these direct-to-consumer tests are fine for purposes like learning what your ancestry consists of, or if you have genetic traits like cilantro tasting like, uh, like soap. But these tests should not be used to make medical decisions. Even though these services might include a carrier information as part of the test package, the number of diseases on their panel is limited. Also, a report is presented without the benefit of a genetic counselor helping you to navigate the results. What does it mean to be a carrier if you are one? What does a positive result mean? What are your options? With these ancestry tests, uh, you're on your own. Any medical grade genetic test should be performed by a certain lab and genetic counseling as should be included. Genetic counselors are trained to interpret genetic results and to convey them in a way that is understandable to the layperson, adds Rose. So if you're thinking of being a father or know someone who is, remember, it takes two to tango, and both tango partners need uh, carrier screening. Happy Father's Day. That was Why Men Should Give a Spit About Genetic Carrier Screening by David Suisa from the My Turn section. For more information on genetic carrier screening, visit genetestnow.com. And once again with the My Turn section, this is called Creative Aging, The Joys of Working with Chabad by Gary Wexler. Editor's note, ninth in a series. 60 was the breaking point. On June 27, my 72nd birthday, it will be 12 years since I was first labeled as old. Women tell me that I had 20 years on them. They say they've been considered old since they reached 40. The first sign of my perceived old age wasn't my body, my graying hair, or my feeble mind. It was the words spoken by my clients in the nonprofit world, about half of them representing Jewish organizations. During my 50s, there had been a general change, and the new guard was younger than me. They prefer to work with people of their own generation. 
and occasionally some of them brazenly questioned that at my age, what could I possibly know about technology and its application to marketing? I soon understood that <clears throat> ageism in America is the last acceptable and at times embraced form of discrimination, even by those who are the first to call out any other kind of discrimination. I myself was probably as guilty of it when I was younger as a new generation is now. It's inherent in American culture. And sad to say, it is also inherent in the way the organized Jewish community operates. In Jewish life, whether it comes from the central Shemapre, Vishamanatam Levaneha, and you shall teach them it diligently to your children, or whether it is the fear that young people may consider the offerings of a Jewish community irrelevant, the focus on the next generation has become a relentless and often an exhilarating passion. Through the massive amounts of free money that support young Jews' social interactions, startup nonprofits, and their Jewish travel expenses, young Jews are given the message that they are special. They embrace and the, uh, the embrace and the easy money tell them that in a changing world they may have better answers to the complicated problems facing Jewish life than those with years of experience. Unfortunately, not a lot of that money goes into lowering the cost of Jewish education. Today I maintain only one client who I've worked with for 35 years, Chabad. Say what you want, but they are absolutely, undeniably, the most successful Jewish organization on the planet. And they care. When my father died at 99 and a half on the second night of the Shiva, several Chabad rabbis who had flown out from Brooklyn rolled in. They came, they told me, because your father died and we knew we had to be with you. Right now I am working with 15 Chabad women who lead day schools around the country. They are riveted on building the best and most affordable Jewish day school system just as Chabad groups have professionally built. Chabad houses all over the world, as well as Chabad on campus, the Jewish Learning Institute, and many other Chabad institutions and programs that have touched countless people around the world. They have a great sense of humor, even about themselves. I often joke with Chabadniks that they are the McDonald's of the Jewish world. You can find them wherever you go. I maintain my relationship with Chabad because they are always willing to do the ultimate work of marketing, which is delivering to those who serve. They go far beyond what other organizations want to believe are the instant magic answers, branding, and social media. In all my years of experience, I have yet to see a nonprofit that has succeeded based on those tactics alone. Unlike product, products and service companies, nonprofits don't have hundreds of millions of dollars to pour into the branding activities that are, the, that are required for success. Chabad understands, even if at times they themselves don't recognize it, that the real world of nonprofit marketing and communication is in the creation of ideas of engagement. It's in their DNA. Stopping women to ask about Shabbat candles and asking men to lay Teflon, for example. These aren't only mitzvah, they are strategic marketing tactics that bring them into personal contact with the Jewish people. When I work with them, it's a challenge of Jewish idea creation, and then they take up with vision and commitment until they, until they succeed. There is another reason I work with them. I love these people. I love them for the fact that I can be honest and open about what I disagree with and don't believe in, and they in return can be honest and open with me and still love me. I love them for their authenticity and loving every Jew. I love them for their passion for the Jewish people and for doing mitzvot. I love them that they are willing to take their families and move to Uzbekistan, Nepal, or Guatemala and know that they are there to, uh, for life to build a Jewish community. 
If the Jewish world's most successful organization wants to continue working with me, I am honored. It means a lot. It also means that I may not be that old and irrelevant. Okay, maybe old. That was created aging the joys of working with Chabad by Gary Wexler from the My Turn section. Gary Wexler woke up one morning and found he had morphed into an old Jewish guy. And folks, we are just about to come to the end of another edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. So for everything that is happening with us Jewish folk right here in the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world, find it all. Until next time, this is your Jewish reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace.